Philippians 1, 1 through 11. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus at Philippi, together with the overseers and deacons, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God every time I remember you. In all my prayers for all of you, I always pray with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now, being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. It is right for me to feel this way about all of you, since I have you in my heart. For whether I am in chains or defending and confirming the gospel, all of you share in God's grace with me. God can testify how I long for all of you with the affection of Christ Jesus. And this is my prayer, that your love may abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight, so that you may be able to discern what is best and may be pure and blameless until the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Good morning. Wow, nice seats over there, guys. That's the way you do church back there. Look at that. That's cozy and comfortable. I like that. Uh, Happy New Year to everybody. Good to see your faces. Uh, Happy New Year, everybody. Thanks. Thanks. Uh, So as is my custom, at the beginning of every new year, I I Google top 10 resolutions for the year, and I click whatever the first link hits, and then I share it with you all. Um, That's what I do every year. It's how I live my life, and so I'm going to share it with you. Top 10 resolutions. I thought we would begin the year by just thinking through what other people are thinking through at this time of year. And then we'll bring uh, this, this prayer of Paul's to mind in light of that context. So here are, according to the link that I first clicked on that Google sent me to directly, top 10 2018 resolutions. Apparently, according to the study, about two-thirds of Americans uh, engage in some sort of New Year resolution. So I don't know if we would fit the national average or not, but that's what the stats say. Here they are for this year. Are you ready? Okay. Uh, Eat better, number one. Number two, exercise more. Number three, spend less money. Number four, self-care, which was defined primarily as get more sleep. Uh, Five, read more books. Six, learn a new skill. Seven, get a new job. Eight, make new friends. Nine, find a new hobby. And ten, focus more on appearance. (laughs) This list actually went to 15. And like number 14 was focus less on appearance. So, you know, that came in at like 3%. This one came in at like 10%. Uh, and then I just found out this year that there's some study that's been done, and apparently uh, January 8th is the day when most people break their New Year's resolutions. <laughs> so today is January 7th, so we're rocking still. I've been telling people all week, 2018 Dave is going to be amazing, uh, and that will end tomorrow, apparently. Um, but I thought it's, it's good to just think of this is what's in the air this time of year. And, and as we sit with that, I want us to, to look at a prayer today of Paul's in the beginning of Philippians that I think is a very fitting way 
to start the new year. And and, as I think of his prayer, his prayer is kind of an anti-resolution, actually. Um, You know, resolutions are about what we plan to do and how we're going to change our future. And and prayer is actually going to the one who holds the future and asking him to do the things that only he can do and entrusting ourselves to him. And so I think as as followers of Jesus, that that is the most appropriate posture as we enter a new year. And, and there's nothing wrong with making resolutions and setting goals. Those can be very good things. But I think the fundamental posture we want as God's people is to come to God at the beginning of a new year, the one who is in control, and entrust ourselves to him, um, commit ourselves into his care for another year and ask him to do the things that only he can do in our hearts and in our lives. And so that's what we're going to do today through this prayer that Paul gives us in verse 9 through 11. Um, But before we get to the prayer, just let you know, we're going to spend the next three months or so starting the new year in the letter to the Philippians. And um, Philippians is my personal favorite letter of the Apostle Paul's. Um, So that's that's how it works for me. I love this letter. There's so many just beautiful moments, great truths that we learn in this letter, challenging passages, really famous passages for some of us who have been reading the Bible for a long time. I'm sure many of you will be very familiar with this. But, you know, I was thinking this week, um, Philippians in my Bible takes up four pages. Okay? That's not a lot in a really big book. And we're going to spend over three months looking at four pages in our Bibles, but I promise you, three months, four months actually, we will only be skimming the surface of what's here. It's just so rich and dense and beautiful, as I hope you will see. So that's what we're going to do over the next couple months. And before we get into the passage, let me just tell you the story of how this letter that was written 2,000 years ago came to be. Let me tell you the story of how a church came to exist in the city of Philippi in the first century. Uh, The story is told in Acts. You don't have to turn there. I'm going to tell you the story. But Acts 16 tells the story. Um, Let me show you a map first off so you know where we're talking. Um, This is the Mediterranean. The blue is water, if you don't know how to read maps. Uh, (laughs) Bottom right, you've got uh, Israel down there. Uh, And then up top right is what would be modern-day Turkey, what was called Asia Minor back then. And then Cross over into modern-day Greece, Macedonia back in that day, and of course, Italy. You can see Philippi up in the top there in, uh, in modern-day Greece. And the story of Acts, uh, the, the founding of the church in uh, Philippi, centers on four main people. So let me just tell you about these four people as a way of telling you the story of, of uh, Philippi. The first person is, of course, the Apostle Paul, who writes this letter. And most of us know something about Paul, but Paul, he grew up as a religious fanatic, this Jewish religious fanatic, this this self-righteous Pharisee who, when the Jesus movement started, he he was bent on actually destroying this Jesus movement. And then, uh, in ways that only Jesus can, (laughs) Jesus decides, you know, I'm going to use this guy. I'm going to use this guy who is my biggest enemy. I'm going to change his life, and he's going to become my biggest supporter. And so one day, Paul was heading up to Damascus, and the risen Jesus encounters him on the road to Damascus and turns his world upside down. And Paul goes from this persecutor of the church to this passionate follower of Jesus Christ. And he has this passion to know Jesus and to spread the word about Jesus. And so he and some companions in the book of Acts, they... 
uh, engage in some missionary journeys around the Mediterranean area. And in their second missionary journey, this is the one where they hit uh, the city of Philippi. Uh, and Acts 16 tells the story. They were in Asia Minor. So if you can see like the city of Ephesus there in that, that region. And, and what they wanted to do is actually head uh, northeast. They wanted to head into Asia. And two times in chapter 16, Paul says, we wanted to go up there. Oh, fix that. That's not good. All right. Um, but twice it says, the spirit of Jesus prevented us from going. So somehow Jesus is closing doors to what they thought would be great ministry in Asia. So they settle on the coast there. And then that night, in, in, at night, Paul has this vision of a man from Macedonia who is begging him, would you come over to Macedonia and help us? Which is apparently what Jesus wanted him to do. So they set sail and they went into Macedonia and eventually ended up in the city of Philippi. So that brings us to our second character, this woman named Lydia. Lydia lived in Philippi, and Acts 16 just tells us she was a woman of some wealth and some means. And Paul and his companions entered into the city, and their custom was on, on the Sabbath day, they'd find a Jewish synagogue, and they'd start there. They'd start teaching you know, Jewish people about Jesus. Apparently, there was no synagogue in Philippi. But outside the city, there was this river where certain women would meet for prayer. And these wouldn't have been Christian women. They wouldn't have heard of Jesus, but they were God-fears. And, and Lydia was one of these women. And so Paul and his companions went out to this river, and they had this encounter with these women. And, and Paul shared the good news of Jesus with her. And I was just thinking this week, like, what an amazing encounter. These two complete strangers from different continents, different parts of the world who have never met. You've got this person sharing Jesus with this other person. And Acts says, the Lord opened Lydia's heart to respond to Paul's message. And she became what is probably the first European convert to Christianity. She invites them to stay uh, with, with her in her home. And they stayed in Philippi for, we don't know, a number of weeks or months. Which brings me to the third person in the story, which is another woman, actually a girl, uh, not a, a wealthy girl, but actually a slave girl, a person who was owned by another individual. There was a slave girl, and we don't even know her name, but uh, the story tells us that, that she had this spirit uh, that enabled her to predict the future. This would not have been a good spirit, but some kind of spirit, and her owners would make money off of her. She became a fortune teller in the town. Uh, and Paul and his companions encountered this girl. And at some point, Paul said to the spirit in her, in the name of Jesus Christ, I command you to come out of her. And Jesus freed this slave woman from this spirit, which was great for her, not so great for her owners who made lots of money off of her. And so they were bummed that they wouldn't have this source of income. So they actually stirred up a crowd in Philippi, and they started this riot, and they got Paul and his companion Silas thrown in jail. So they spent the night in Philippi in jail. Which brings me to the final character, uh, the Philippian jailer, right? So that night, many of you know the story, at midnight, Paul and Silas, they've been beaten, uh, they're in chains, and at midnight, they're praying and they're singing to Jesus. Amazing. And as they're doing that, Jesus sends an earthquake on this jail and their chains and all the prisoners' chains are, are broken three, free in this earthquake and they're going to walk out. Well, the jailer sees this and he realizes, oh my gosh, I'm, I'm in trouble. And he's actually going to take his life because that's what his boss is going to do to him when they find out that he's lost all the prisoners. And Paul and Silas say, no, 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 don't, don't do that. 
and they share the message of Jesus. And they say to him, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. And this man believes. Jesus opens his heart. He's converted. He takes him to his house that early in the, in, in the middle of the night. His family is converted. And then they actually go back to prison so that they're there in the morning when the, when the authorities arrive. The authorities release them and they spend a little bit more time in Philippi and then they go on to another city. So that's the story of Philippi. It's such a crazy story, such a Jesus story. And I was just thinking of these first Philippian Christians. You have this, you have Lydia, this woman of wealth. You have this slave girl who's poor and oppressed. And then you've got a jailer, probably some blue collar, rough and tumble kind of guy, you know. Not exactly like a perfect formula for a church plant in my mind. It's not how I would have done it. Um, But that's what Jesus wanted to do. Those are the people he wanted. And so they came together and and this house church started meeting in Lydia's house and then maybe it expanded to other houses and it grew over time. We don't know how large it was. So now this letter is written about 10 years later, right? Paul has kept in relationship with them and correspondence with them. And now he's writing a letter to them. Paul is writing this letter from prison. He is most likely in Rome. We're not positive, but most likely in Rome for telling the message of Jesus. And uh, Jesus as Lord is not a good message in a Roman empire where Caesar is Lord. So you can get in trouble saying things like that. He's in prison. And the Philippians have sent one of their own, which would be a long journey, a guy named uh, Epaphroditus. If we had a boy, we'd have named him Epaphroditus. Um, (laughs) Epaphroditus, old name. Uh, He's come to visit Paul, to comfort him, to pray with him. He's brought gifts, financial contributions for Paul and his ministry. So Paul's been encouraged by this. And now he's sending a letter back to this beloved church. And and Epaphroditus Epaphroditus will will carry this letter back. So that's that's how this this even comes to be. And it's, it's just such a great Jesus Story And there's so many great themes in this letter, as we'll see. There's uh, themes of unity. There's themes of joy and suffering. There's themes of self-sacrifice, of, of pressing on towards the heavenly goal. Uh, but if I had to sum it up, if I had to sum up the theme of Philippians in a word, it would be the classic Sunday school answer, which is Jesus. <laughs> yeah. If I had to sum up Philippians, in a word, it's Jesus. Specifically, in this letter, Paul is painting a picture of what it means to live the Jesus life. That's what this letter is all about, what it means to live the Jesus life. And and what I mean by that is what it means when Jesus actually grabs a hold of your life of your heart. When you come to believe in your heart, when you come to know what Paul will call the surpassing greatness of knowing Jesus Christ, when you begin to believe that Jesus is better and more fulfilling than anything this world has to offer, when, when you start making knowing him more deeply and, and making him known more deeply, that becomes your goal. This is a picture of that kind of life. And I just, I wanted to use that phrase, the Jesus life, because in using that, I'm distinguishing that from a life of religion or spirituality or church 
attendance. And I, I think Paul has almost nothing to say in this, in this. Actually, he has some negative things to say. But in general, he doesn't have anything to say if we're pursuing a life of religion or some philosophy or some spirituality or certainly just going to church. He's not interested in that. He's, he's not talking about religion. Throughout this letter, he is talking about a person, the person, Jesus, the carpenter from Nazarene, crucified, risen, now king of the universe, according to Paul. He's talking about living life with that person. And that, I think that's important to say uh, anytime. But, it, you know, I've been, I've been uh, here at this church for 15 years now. And, and as I observe the church in Orange County in 2018, um, I see there are so many people. I'm not just talking about our church, but there are so many people who are going to church who are, who are doing religion, who are not actually living the Jesus life. That they're kind of, they're, they're doing the thing, but in their heart of hearts, they have not come to terms with the surpassing greatness of a person. And that, that life with this person is what life is all about. And so Paul is going to take us on a journey. He's going to say, let me show you the Jesus life. And he will invite us into his own life. We'll see a lot of insight into his own journey with Jesus. And he invites us into our own journey with Jesus. And so we're going to focus this morning on the prayer in verses 9 through 11. But let me just, I I promise we'll get there eventually. Let me just walk you through these first verses just to notice uh, there's a greeting in verse 1 and 2. And and notice how Jesus-centric this greeting is. Paul and Timothy, look at how Paul describes him and Timothy, servants of Jesus Christ, literally slaves. He's saying, hey, we belong to Jesus. Our lives are lived for Jesus. He calls the shots we follow. We're not great apostles. We're just servants of Jesus. And then he addresses the people as this, to all God's holy people in Christ Jesus at Philippi. You are God's saints. You, are, you have been set apart for what? For Jesus in Christ, to live with him and in him. Verse 2, grace and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And then in verses 3 through 8, he offers this thanksgiving for the Philippians. And uh, if you know this letter, you know Philippians is probably Paul's most affectionate letter. Of all the letters he writes, he has the, the warmest feelings, if I can say that, towards this community. And certain letters he writes because there's problems in the church and he has to write to address those not as friendly sometimes. This one is very affectionate. I just want you to, I was struck again this week by how, how wonderful it is. Verse three, I thank my God every time I remember you. Verse four, in all my prayers, I'm always praying with joy. Thanks and joy is what comes to Paul's mind. You know, those people, like when you think of them, they just bring a smile to your face. I feel like the Philippians were that for Paul. I, I just, I thank God. I'm joyful when I think of you. Look at verse seven. It's right for me to feel this way about you since I have you in my heart. I hold you in my heart. Look at verse eight. God can testify how I long for all of you with the affection of Christ Jesus. The Greek word behind that word affection is actually the word the guts. And so Paul, it's almost like I have this visceral longing to be with you. I, I, was, I was reading this this week and I thought, these are the kinds of things, this, this reads like a love letter. You know, these are the kinds of things I say to my wife if, if I had been traveling for a couple months and hadn't seen her. I would say these things, oh, I long for you. I, this bond I have, I, I, I'm grateful for you. I long to see you. I hold you in my heart. 
And Paul feels that for this church, these Christians at Philippi. And the reason he does, the reason he feels that for them is found in verse 5. Take a look at verse 5. Here's why. Because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. That word partnership, uh, it also, that same Greek word shows up in verse 7. Twice Paul mentions it. It's a really rich word that many of you are familiar with. It's the Greek word koinonia. Heard of that? Koinonia. It, it, it can mean fellowship, partnership, community, what we share together. It, it, is, it is what we share in common because of our connection with Jesus. The grace that we share in common, the goals that we share in common, the, the challenges of life that we share in common. And here's Paul in prison. He's going through lots of challenges. He's isolated, but he thinks about this group of believers who share the same passions and values and their same, same commitment to Jesus. And he feels the koinonia, the connection with them. Um, I started rereading The Lord of the Rings this week. Uh, it's been 15 years since I've read it. I actually jumped straight into book two, which I remember being my favorite. Um, so I just jumped in. I know the story pretty well. So as many of you know. Um, but as I'm reading it again, what, what's so compelling about what Tolkien did in his writing, what's so compelling is his picture of the koinonia that exists between these fellow travelers, between Sam and Frodo, and right now I'm reading about Aragorn and Legolas and Gimli. These, there's, this, there's this camaraderie, maybe is a good word, this bond that they feel because they're part of this shared adventure, this, this shared quest, this shared task to destroy the ring. And there's, Tolkien beautifully captures this idea of, of koinonia. And that's what Paul felt for this church. And that is what we, by God's grace, can feel for one another. Koinonia, this connection. Hey, we, we are, we have this, we, we experience the same grace. We have the same troubles. We have the same goals. And there's this bond, there's this camaraderie that we have. And so Paul is feeling that in prison. And he's so aware that God is at work in the Philippians' lives. And so he, he, he says uh, very famously, look at verse 6. I'll probably come back to this one. It's such a great verse. I'm confident of this, that, that the one who began a good work in you, God, who began a good work in you, he's going to carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. I've seen God at work in you, and I'm confident he is not going to quit on that work. He's going to be faithful to bring that work to completion in your lives. And then he goes into verse 9, where he basically prays that God would do and continue to do his work in the Philippians. So this is where I want to narrow us in for the next last 10 minutes. And look at this prayer and consider this prayer at the beginning of a year and say, this is a great prayer for us at the start of a new year. So let me read it to you again. Of course, you didn't take it in uh, first time. Verse 9, this is my prayer. That your love may abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight so that you may be able to discern what is best and may be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Uh, So much in there. Um, But I think the heart of the prayer, really the, the key idea that Paul is getting at is found in verse 10. Look at verse 10. It's a prayer of this so that you may be able to discern what is best. He's saying that, that I'm asking that God would give you insight. So as you look at all the things in life, 
that you'd see the things that rise above the rest. You'd see the things that are superior, that are better. You would be able to distinguish, yeah, that is truly what counts in life. If you have a a New Living Translation, uh, it translates it this way. For I want you to understand what really matters. And that's a great translation. And I was thinking this week, you know, I can't think of a better prayer for the church of Orange County at the beginning of 2018 than that prayer. That God would show you what really matters matters. And I say that because there are so many things (laughs) competing and vying for our attention and our affections, right? I mean, I was was just thinking about that. We have more inputs at the beginning of a new year now than we ever have before. We are inundated every day by products that are promising satisfaction for us. We have events that we can attend, possibilities that we can pursue, information to constantly take in, news to just try to keep up with. And we have more resources than we've ever had before to travel, to be entertained, to distract, to do whatever we want. We are literally swimming in information, experience, potential, possibility. And so the deepest prayer we need is not, Lord, help us to know what is possible. Help us to know what is permissible. What we need in all of that is, Lord, help us to know what is best. Gosh, reveal to us what really matters in life. On Friday, I was having breakfast uh, with some of you actually, and I was in a conversation about how tall Dennis Rodman is. Dennis Robin played um, in the NBA about 15 years ago. I had him at like 6'9". My friend had him at like 6'5". Uh, and so we're talking about how tall Dennis Rodman is. And I was able to go to my phone and Google how tall is Dennis Rodman. And we engaged in a five-minute conversation. And then later I came back to my office and I was um, working on my sermon. And I thought, you know, I'm, I'm probably one of the first human beings in the history of the world um, who could actually care about how tall an ex-NBA player is, and that could actually pursue that line of thought through a device that I have in my hand that can tell me and engage in a conversation with that. What I need <laughs> at the beginning of a new is not knowledge about what is possible, <laughs> but what is best. What really matters in life. And Paul has a particular vantage point. He wants us to consider what is best. Look at how verse 10 goes on. So that you may be able to discern what is best, and here's the vantage point, and may be pure and blameless for the day of Christ. He wants us to think about things from the perspective of the day of Christ. That is, the day when Jesus returns. And we may be alive when that happens. We may not be, but we will all die. And at some point, we will face Jesus Christ. We will see him. We will be with him. And we will give some account for our lives. And I want you to just imagine that for a second. Imagine that moment. And what I imagine is as we look back at our lives from that vantage point, uh, there will be some things. Well, I guess there'll be a lot of surprises in that moment will be my guess. And there'll be some things that will go, man, that felt really important then. And that doesn't feel very important right now. Like in light of this moment, man, that doesn't seem important. And, and, or the opposite, that, that kind of felt small and unassuming. But now I realize that was, that was really important. But I would imagine we'll look at things and go, gosh, that wasn't as important as I thought. 
And I don't know what that would be, you know, for, for each one of us. I'm sure for some of us it'll be looking at our lives and going, man, I worried so much about what those people thought of me. Like I spent so much energy worrying about what they thought of me. And honestly, that doesn't feel very important in this moment. Or I, I fought so hard for that promotion. That, that just consumed me. Or I, I worked so hard to make the money to, to be able to do that remodel. That just, that was it. Or we, you know, with our kids, we, man, we pushed so hard for them to get those grades so they could get into that school or they could be the best whatever player they could be. And that consumed us. That was like it. And now that doesn't seem important at all. Or I, I spent so many hours watching that show. <laughs> and I, I just thought about it. It captured my imagination. But it doesn't seem as important. And looking back, man, maybe some of those were the wrong battles to be fighting. The wrong treasures to pursuing. And again, the, the opposite is probably true too. We'll look and go, there are certain things that at the time, maybe they didn't seem dramatic or, um, you know, all that big of a deal. But man, those were, that was significant. Uh, you know, I, I joined that, that group that was um, trying to pursue Jesus. And at the time, I just kind of did it. But looking back, man, that was, that was big for my life. That had a lot of fruit. Um, you know, when that, that decision we made to have a date night every other week or so, like, it just kind of, we kind of did. But man, 40, 50 years later, looking back, that was, that was, that was pretty big. Um, that time I called that friend and, and just humbled myself and apologized, that, that was a big, that was a big moment for me. I think that day will bring great clarity to us on what really matters. And Paul's prayer is this, I want you to have that clarity now. I want you to have it now as you go through this life so that when that day comes, you'll be prepared. You'll be blameless. You'll be filled with the fruit of Christ's righteousness. Uh, my brother and I used to do this really strange and twisted thought experiment. Um, but we would, when we were in like our mid to late 20s, we, we always we thought we'd talk a lot about like, what if we could relive high school again? which for some of you would be your worst nightmare, you know. But, but we like, the idea was, man, in high school, like you're so, your identity is not formed. You're so just, you know, insecure and trying to figure out life. And there's so much anxiety. It's just such a weird time. And, and we were like, as now as late 20s, like kind of having at least a semblance of an identity and feeling a little bit more grounded. Like what if we could actually go back <laughs> through high school, from this grounded place, uh, and kind of knowing who we are, and enjoy what there is to enjoy about high school, and not worry and get consumed with all the things that high schoolers are worried about and consumed with. Wouldn't that be great? And it's a horrible analogy, I know, except that it's a great analogy, um, because we're all kind of still high schoolers in a lot of ways. (laughs) You know, I mean, we're all still kind of these this half-formed, slightly insecure, right, needy, dysfunctional people. And we're, we're going through life just trying to grab at what, what we think is going to bring happiness. In my sense of this prayer is Paul's like, oh, I, I want you, I want you in all that, I want you to see what really matters. I want you to, to grab onto the things that are going to truly bring joy and truly bring hope and a sense of purpose and peace in your life. That's what I want for you. Verse 11, he says, 
so that you would be filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ. You know, our lives can be filled with so many things. The prayer is, God, would you fill our hearts with righteousness, with the peace of Jesus and the love of Jesus and the joy of Jesus and the hope and the faith and the courage and the wisdom. And that comes from seeing reality, seeing things the way they really are, seeing what really matters in life. And so that's what Paul's praying, that you would see and, and know what it is that's most important. And one last thing I want to say about the prayer, it's not just identifying what is best. The prayer is not just that you could identify what matters. Because honestly, I think most of us can already do that pretty well. Like we kind of know, if we step back, we kind of know what's most important. We know what we should be valuing. But the prayer is not just that you would know it. The prayer is, my prayer is that you would love what is best. That you would desire what is best. Look at verse 9. This is my prayer that your love may abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight. I want your love to be increasingly developed in its insight. I want your love to be increasingly discerning. I want God to, to change your heart's desires and the things that you crave so that you actually love the things most worth, worth loving. To go back to the high school analogy, or even before that, like to the grade school analogy, I was you think about when I was when I was in grade school. There were thir- certain things that I craved. Okay, and I'm thinking in, ter- in the realm of food. Okay, my heart loved my I craved things like an Abba Zaba, and a Snickers, and uh, Skittles, and peanut butter cups. Those are my favorite peanut butter cups. Um, I craved those things, and as I've matured as a human being, hopefully, uh, I I. I actually crave different things now. I don't crave candy anymore. I crave food with greater substance, food that is actually healthy and that sustains me. And my sense is Paul's is getting at that. Ah, I want you not just to know, but I want you, I want you to crave what is really worth craving. I want you to love the things that are going to bring true joy and true happiness. Don't crave these lesser things, things like money, and reputation, and external beauty, worldly comforts, all these things that have this deep tug on our hearts. The prayer is that God would free us from the tug that those have so that we would begin to love the things that bring true joy, true fulfillment. I think about once a year, I, I, I offer you this quote from C.S. Lewis. And so I'm going to offer it at the beginning of a new year. It just says it so well. He says, it would seem that our Lord finds our desires, our cravings, our, our heart, our, our loves, actually not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures fooling about with things like drink and sex and ambition when in fact infinite joy is being offered us. We're like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he can't imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We're actually far too easily pleased. And I think the prayer of Paul's is, I want you to be pleased with the things that are worth being pleased about. And ultimately what that is in this letter to the Philippians is Jesus. I want you to want Jesus. I want you to come to understand and actually experience the surpassing greatness 
of knowing Jesus. The freedom and joy and peace and sense of purpose that can come from getting to know Jesus better and better and wanting to make him known. That is my prayer. So that's the prayer at the beginning of this new year. And that's the prayer I want to offer to you as, as individuals and as a church community. This prayer for the Jesus life. This prayer uh, that Jesus, this life that Jesus invites us into. And so my, my invitation to you this week, my challenge to you this week would be make this prayer your prayer. Um, before we start trying to prioritize, okay, what are the most important things and what should I do, Lord? Let's actually pray. <laughs> Let's ask God to work in our hearts and minds to do what only he can do. Because we really can't change our wants all that well. But he can. And so let's make this our prayer this week. And I want to challenge you every day this week, just make this your prayer. And what we've done, you notice in the bulletins, we've printed out on a little piece of paper this prayer. I think this is the New Living Translation that we've given you. And... Um, but put it in your car, put it in your Bible, put it next to your bed, wherever um, you might find it. And let's make this our prayer as a community at the beginning of a new year. And this is a great prayer to pray for yourself. And that's the, what I'd most encourage. But it's also a great prayer to pray for people you love. I mean, for me as a father of three daughters, I can't think of a prayer that is closer to my heart for these girls in their lives. I want them to know what's best. I want them to, to know what really matters. And so we can pray it for ourselves. We can pray it for one another. So I want to create a little bit of space for each of us just to sit with this for a moment with God. So we're going to take a moment of silence. And then Mark is going to come up and actually pray this prayer uh, and offer and kind of commit uh, and trust us to the Lord at the beginning of this new year. So if you would, just close your eyes. And I want to... Give us just a little bit of space for the next minute to, to engage with Jesus. And as you, as you look at your life at the beginning of a new year and some of the things that you want to pursue, some of the fears that might be in you, some of the hopes, to just step back for a moment with Jesus and ask the question, Jesus, in light of who you are, what's best what is most important for me in this new year? What, what are the things that really matter? And to actually be willing to kind of let our hold of this year loose for a moment and to give it to him and have a humility and say, I, I want to genuinely listen and be open to you revealing to me this is what's most important. These are the things that are best. So let's take a moment just to sit with that, prayerfully consider with Jesus what that conversation.